Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. We are back after the Thanksgiving break, and today I'm joined by Dan Ang. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, thanks for having us over here. That's great. Oh, thank you. So uh, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the use of fluid in trauma patients and the different types of fluid we might encounter and some of the advantages and disadvantages that we might be running into and some of the potential pitfalls we want to be really careful of. So, uh, Dan, if you want to just get us started, why don't you talk a little bit about how did you get into EMS and kind of where did you end up and what are you doing right now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I got into EMS during um, my college, my undergraduate study. Uh, I went to St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. And um, on campus, they have a, a student-run first response agency. Um, and uh, through that time there, I both um, started at a, as an EMT, went through the class, moved up to doing a supervisory position, and joining my local EMS squad with Potsdam and Rescue. Um, you know, over the course of the few years that I was at St. Lawrence, I ultimately went to went on to graduate. And um, I originally was studying pre-med to go to PA school. Well, that was my plan. But uh, happened to be that during my senior year, there was a, a exhibition table in the student center. There was a college that showed up, um, SUNY Ken, which was right down the road from St. Lawrence. And a friend of mine was at the desk there, uh, stopped talking to him for a little bit. He said, hey, fill out one of these uh, little interest forms for me so I can get some credit for being here. I was like, oh, sure. So one of those, um, uh, one of the programs that was offered by Sunican happened to be nursing. I checked it, put some demographics down, and lo and behold, forgot about it. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call, and they asked me to come um, do a nursing program with them for a scholarship. Nice. So that's how I got into nursing as well. So you work in the ED right now as a nurse? All right. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Have you worked on any other floors at all? Any other experience? No. Uh, my most most of my ER or most of my time in nursing has been with the emergency department. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is there a specific reason you chose the ED, or is that just kind of the best fit with your EMS background? Or yeah, I've always liked to be the EMS point of it, the pre-hospital, the you know getting to the nitty gritty and seeing people firsthand and carrying it through to a diagnosis or going through all of the uh, steps to figuring out what's going on with the person um, instead of being one of the, on the inpatient side to carry on treatment. Yeah. Um, and that's been more my reasoning behind going to the ER and, and being from, in EMS from start to finish in that sense. Yeah. So. I always think it's really interesting. I know when I did all my clinicals there, I always got a kick out of how it's pretty much like you, you get the patient in and you're like, Hey, what's wrong with you? Is anything going to kill you? No. Okay. All right. Where are we going to send you? Are we sending you home or are we sending you upstairs? Great. Perfect. Do you need a really advanced team to watch you? Let's go to the ICU. You need someone, well, maybe we just keep you overnight and make sure you got a nasal cannula. Maybe you go to another floor. And I think the, concept that is so interesting because you really never know what's going to walk through the door. And it feels to me like when I did my rotations on the inpatient floors, it's much more predictable. Like if you're on a, you know, cardiothoracic floor, I bet you can guess what you're probably going to be dealing with most days. Whereas the ER, you could go from a two week old baby that's not breathing all the way up through a aortic dissection and a 72 year old person and, you know, all the way back down to a trauma. And there's really no way to tell what's going to come in next. That's kind of an interesting spot to be in. Oh yeah. You know a lot about, um, you know, a little bit of, about a lot of things Yeah, and that's, what's nice about it. Yeah, exactly. I, I like the fact that you can call a specialist 
you know, like if something's kind of getting complex and you're like, oh man, this is electrophysiology to the 10th degree. You can, you can get on the phone and be like, let's get those, let's get those cardio guys down here and see what they have to say. And I think that's a really awesome system in the hospital. Oh yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, some of the fluids that we can use. Everyone that I know that's been through an AEMT course or paramedic course has kind of heard the terminology of hypertonic, hypotonic, and isotonic. Yeah. I mean, you can just, uh, I mean, even dial it back even further than that and go back to high school biology and, you know, talk about osmosis, osmolality, and the tonicity, which gets you your isotonic, hypotonic, and hypertonic. Exactly. Uh, Osmosis, you know, you see water moving across the semipermeal membrane, the cellular membrane, um, as in our application. Um, And it follows the water, you follow the water from high to low in that transmission. Uh, Osmolality is that concentration of the solute in the solvent, solvent being the water, um, and the solute being your electrolytes, your dextrose, whatever molecules happen to be in solution. Yeah. Um, and with those two definitions, you can get into tonicity. So the actual definition of tonicity is just a solution's af- effect on the size of the cell and following where that uh, solute is going to go. Yeah. So you're isotonic, you're going to have the same amount of solute um, that's similar, if not exactly the same as what's inside the cell versus outside the cell. When you give fluids, it's going to go into the extracellular compartment into the vasculature and all those electrolytes and everything will flow from the extracellular fluid to the intra- uh, intracellular fluid. Um, hypotonic follows the fact that you have less solute in the solution that you're giving, causing water to balance out and become in, in an equilibrium because of osmosis out of the cell into the extracellular space. Yeah. And then the opposite, hypertonic, you have more solute in that fluid than what is in the cell. So you have that other rush. Yeah. And so. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. I'm a very visual learner and I like to always come up with little kind of tricks to remember this stuff and I'm a big fan of color coding I like staples a lot there's a lot of different colors there and binders and different pieces of paper you can do Um, and one of the ways that I always remember this is in hypotonic the the word the root word of hypo ends in an o and I think of that round cell being kind of blown out and expanded kind of like a big o you know as this the cells you know sucking all the water in and then hyper the lowercase e in hyper to me looks like kind of a collapsed almost like a sickle cell collapsed cell as all the water's you know leaving that cell and going into the intravascular space and so just for those of you that are out there if you're struggling to remember these things i know that's a goofy trick but it seems to always kind of help me on test just remember that type of thing iso i'm sorry i don't have a great way to remember that just got to remember that's different than the other two so Oh, no, that's a great analogy. That's a good way to think about it. So can you give us a couple examples of maybe what a hypertonic solution would be and maybe where we might see that and how it might be used in the hospital? Yeah, um, something that would be a hypertonic solution would be uh, 3% saline, for for instance. Um, you might use that um, as a uh, temporizing mechanism to reduce your intracranial pressure. Oftentimes it's given for that. If you have someone with a bad head bleed or someone who has an increased intracranial pressure for any number of reasons, um, prior to going to definitive treatment, whether that being a bolt or surgery, uh, you would give hypertonic saline, which will help draw some of that 
water out of the uh, intracellular space, reducing that pressure. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I got to imagine that ties into the Monroe Kelly doctrine and kind of that concept that there's, you know, a set amount of volume inside of the head being between the CSF, the blood and the brain. Yep, exactly. You got your closed system being the skull, you have your immovable object being the brain, and then you have that balance between the CSF and the blood circulating around. Um, that's really the only place that can absorb or, um, you know, help temporize some of that increase in pressure. Um, and that's where you're acting on with your hypertonic saline. Absolutely. And if any of you guys are interested in a shameless plug here, we do have an episode on autoregulation and TBI injuries with Dr. George from the emergency department. So if that little tidbit interested you, go back and listen to that episode from last year. Um, I'm sure to pick up some stuff. Remember that when we typically give our isotonic um, crystalloid of normal saline, we're typically giving 0.9%. Does that sound right? Correct. Yeah. And so when we're talking about hypertonic, we're talking about 3%. 3%, 5%, um, there's other ones that will ultimately be hypertonic, but those are the most common ones that you'll see. Yeah, and I was never a great physics guy or biology guy, but I got to imagine that the greater that percentage of salt in that solution, the more hypertonic it's going to be. Correct. Perfect. Great. I'm glad I got that right. We're on a good start. So awesome. Yeah, nice. Um, is there any hypotonic solutions that you can think of? I was, I was trying to think back in my memory, and I, I've definitely heard the concept of hypertonic used in intracranial pressure. And I know we use lots of different isotonic crystalloids. I was curious if you had any experience with hypo. Yeah, so one of the rounds I could think of for hypotonic um, a solution being um, ha uh, half normal saline or quarter normal saline, uh, someone who is... Uh, suffering from uh, hypernatremia, too yeah. much salt in the body is already too much uh, sodium. Uh, they're going to be dehydrated. They're going to be progressing down the, the route of potentially having seizures and being altered. And um, For rehydration of that patient and to bring that sodium down, you may use C um, hypotonic saline or yeah. half normal saline yeah. used that in sense. that instance. Yeah. And, and that's brings up a great point as as helpful as it can be to be giving these hypertonic solutions sometimes in intracranial pressure i gotta imagine we've got to be pretty cautious about our electrolyte balances prior to giving these medicines right because we're going to be adding salt by giving these new um, solutions so we want to make sure that uh, i gotta imagine you're going to do some lab results before you start giving meds like this oh certainly you want to get it definitely see what um you may see a cmp ordered looking at your sodium your chloride your potassium your magnesium your calcium um, the thing with, with, uh, even isotonic solutions such as normal saline is that it has a higher concentration of chloride in it than what's in the body. So if you start throwing that off, you can get, um, alterations in your me metabolic processes and your changes in your, your, um, electrolyte levels. And that's a great segue. I think one of the other things we wanted to talk about is the role of fluid resuscitation and trauma. And I think, a long time ago, you know, I, I still have met instructors that were trained many years ago, and they have this concept of everyone's going to be at 120 and they're going to bleed pink, you know, and we need to pump them full of fluid because the heart needs a lot of fluid and the brain needs everything. And I think what we're learning now and what the new medicine is showing very clearly is that um, there are some times where permissive hypotension may actually be the answer to help prolong our ability to treat people in that window. And sometimes, maybe we don't need to push them up to that 120 systolic. Maybe that's a little bit too excessive because it can actually bring in um, the, you know, the trauma triangle of death or the trauma diamond. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what we can see in those settings? Certainly. So um, 
one of the uh, contributing factors of morbidity and mortality is hypotension and hemorrhage in the trauma patient. You'll see hypovolemic shock as one of those high up um, indications of uh, how severe trauma is. And uh, one of those biggest things of your ABCs that you need to, to control is the hemorrhage portion of it. Um, when we're looking at hemorrhage, we're, when we talk about the trauma triad of death, it includes acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. The hypothermia portion of it, um, you can be seeing, whenever we get a trauma patient, we're always taught to get them trauma naked, look for any injuries beyond whatever distractible injury there is, and control those as we can see fit to be a full head to toe. When we get them naked, when we take all their clothes off, there's that insensible loss of heat just by the ambient temperature around them. Um, they're also losing heat from the warmed blood that they're exsanguinating or bleeding out. Um, with hypothermia, that potentiate, potentiates acidosis, potentiates coagulopathy. We want to try to control that as best we can. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think one of the things we stress heavily in our trauma courses, whether it's tactical emergency casualty care or our PHDLS program, pre-hospital trauma life support, is that when our patients are shivering, they're burning that key ATP that they're going to be needing as they're going into this shock state. And that's absolutely something that we can hopefully control, at least in the ambulance or in the trauma room. You know, the old adage of you should be sweating when you're working a trauma patient because it should be nice and warm to try to eliminate the amount of you know, radiation and convection that's leaving their body into the ambient air. So if we make that room nice and hot, theoretically, we're going to kind of slow that that diffusion of, of heat away from their body down a little bit. Certainly. And that, you know, brings a great segue into the ATP comment of your, your acidosis, um, your body, when they're in aer uh, aerobic respiration, um, metabolic metabolism, uh, they, uh, you know, your body uses oxygen and carbohydrates to produce energy. When there's a lack of that, you have um, less perfusion because you don't have a circulating blood volume. Your body switches from aerobic to anaerobic, producing lactic acid. And that further potentiates a drop in pH, inhibiting numerous other um, body processes. Uh, if you think of your oxygen dissociation curve um, of your circulating blood, you know the ability for those red blood cells to carry oxygen and get it to where it needs to go is impaired when you um, bring that pH down. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, can, making sure that we're not causing hypothermia in these patients. And we talked a little bit about making sure that we are um, paying attention to the trauma triad of death. There's one more leg that we typically teach in EMS, which is the coagulopathy, which is kind of one of my favorite EMS words. I think it's just a fun word to say, coagulopathy. Essentially what it is is... Um, the normal saline doesn't carry red blood cells. It's just an isotonic solution. It just increases the vascular volume. That's the extent of what that medication does. And it's trying to allow those tissues to perfuse by creating an environment where the red blood cells that are still there that haven't exsanguinated can move to the tissues that they need to move to. But it has no oxygen uh, carrying capabilities and it doesn't have, you know, anything, any proteins or anything that we're going to need in our body. And I think, Thinking about that, when we have a blood clot forming, if we start pumping them full of normal saline up and up and up, all of a sudden we're starting to flow this isotonic crystalloid through those clots and it doesn't have the same clotting cascade factors that the red blood cells have. Um, and we want to be cognizant of that. Oh, certainly. You know, you're losing the blood that you have in your body, the whole blood. It creates many different factors. But, you know, if you take a whole blood transfusion and you break that down to red blood cells, platelets, and plasma... Um, you're losing all that as, as you bleed out. 
saline doesn't have that. Um, and in doing so, you, you lose, like you said, all those clotting factors, the platelets themselves actually help form that clot. Um, and you, your body doesn't respond as well. Um, and in doing so, your body is impaired in stopping that process internally, whatever bleeding that is, whether it's internal bleeding, external bleeding, can't control it. That's when we on the outside as our practitioner need to help, um, control that, uh, for the benefit of the patient. Absolutely. And one of, one of the biggest things we can do in our EMS world, regardless of all this fluid resuscitation, is actually stop that bleeding at the source. Try to keep the blood in there. That's going to be way more effective. A pinch of prevention is going to go a long way compared to um, trying to come up with a cure a little bit later once we've lost that. So much so that a lot of our programs, including our our TECC program uses the MARCH acronym, meaning that massive hemorrhage is the very first thing we're evaluating for before we even look at the airway in these trauma patients that are subject to victims of violence. And we're looking for those arterial bleeds because placing a tourniquet there in the first 10 to 15 seconds allows that life threat to end. And now we can move to those more demanding responsibilities like the airway, the breathing, more of the circulatory things. But keeping that blood even you know, 30 seconds to a minute of uncontrolled bleeding can can cause a big problem where if we just stop that, stop the problem, and then kind of go back and treat the symptoms, we'll be in pretty decent shape. Oh, for sure. Um, and, you know, the, tra- the whole trauma try to death, it's, it's not individually three points. Um, you don't just have your isolated coagulopathy. You don't just have your isolated acidosis. And you don't just have your isolated hypothermia. They all are in sync. So your collab- coagulopathy becomes worsened if you're hypothermic. Yep. It in- inhibits some of the clotting cascade um, that will form that clot. And your acidosis, again, also inhibits your um, coagulopathy and exacerbated by hypothermia. So it's a, it's a continual cycle of things we try to have to control um, to prevent morbidity, mortality in our trauma patient. If we can interrupt that triangle and kind of stop that spiral a little bit, something as simple as keeping them warm is going to help reduce the speed at which they become acidotic. And if they're not being as acidotic, those enzymes will work better. And then they maybe will still have some clotting. And if they still clot, maybe the bleeding stops. So we have to be those interrupters that come in and start with the low hanging fruit, like have a hot ambulance. If you're going to a trauma call, just turn the heat up in the ambulance. That's the easiest, quickest, fastest thing you can do. Um, and unfortunately, it's not some dramatic thing you're going to see like cardioversion, but it may actually produce a better outcome for the patient if you can just think about trying to make sure that you have a hot ambulance. And anybody that's been on any trauma calls, I mean, you know as well as I do that there's a lot that's going on. One of the things I always try to do on my ambulance when I work there is when we're going to a trauma is crank the heat before you make patient contact because at least the way my mind works, the minute you start thinking EMS, you'll never remember to turn the heat up because you're going to get sucked into heart rate, blood pressure, airway, breathing, circulation, meds, phone call. You're just going to be thinking all these other things. Set yourself up for success. Grab the equipment you need. Make sure you have it with you, including the suction. We did a whole episode on suction. Make sure you bring that. If you don't have it, it's not going to help you. And turn that heat up before you go talk to the patient because once you have that cognitive load of the of the trauma call, you won't remember to go back. Oh, certainly agree. You know, controlling all those things before we get into our acronyms and our treatment guidelines and our, you know, systemic um, A, B, C, D, E uh, ways of assessment from head to toe. The, kind of those other things fall out the window. And like you just said, controlling that prior to key. Yeah. When you're calm before you get engaged with the patient. So, um, and you said there's a little bit more information coming out and now a lot of in hospital people are looking towards kind of the trauma diamond you said. So what's that? What's the other point? 
Yeah. So the way I like to think of it kind of being on that, uh, um, ER side of it is, is the trauma diamond of death. That fourth point is hypocalcemia. Um, and when we're going to be treating our trauma patient, they're going to be losing blood and most likely they're going to be receiving blood as a transfusion, whether that's just one or two units, um, the correct, uh, you know, mild to moderate blood loss, or it's a full on mass transfusion protocol with multiple units of blood platelets and FFP. Um, when red blood cells, all the, uh, are processed, uh, something called um, citrate is added to the red blood cells bag to, as a preservative. And when introduced into the bloodstream will lower calcium. You give multiple rounds of that um, blood products through IV as infusion, you're going to drop your ionized calcium and your serum calcium overall. And that affects uh, both cardiac contractility. Uh, your, you can see cardiac dysfunction, dysrhythmia, such as a prolonged QT. Um, and it's an inadvertent, you know, I guess I should say detriment to the treatment that we're using um, to help this patient in their current need of threat of life and limb. But that's kind of something to keep in mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when we're talking about the trauma uh, diamond of death, a lot of you may be thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to use normal saline again. This is terrible. This, I don't want to do the trauma diamond of death. It even sounds terrible. And I think what we need to remember is that it's, it's about balance. It's really about balance. You need to have a adequate blood pressure to perfuse the organs and tissues and avoid brain damage and organ failure and kidney dysfunction and all those other things that we know can happen. But we also want to make sure that once we hit our metrics that we're looking for, which we're going to talk about in a second, maybe we can hold off on excessive fluid resuscitation. Maybe we're titrating to a specific either permissible hypotension or maybe we're treating for a traumatic brain injury, which is going to increase our systolic um, target goal a little bit just to allow for that cerebral perfusion pressure. Again, feel free to go look at that TBI episode if you're more interested in that. Um, but it's just about balance. And I think that's something that sometimes we can lack in EMS because we love being aggressive and treating quickly. And I think there's two schools of thought that I've run into over my short career in EMS that I've heard from all different sources. One is titrating to mean arterial pressure or MAP. So looking for a MAP around 65 for our trauma patients, you know, 60 to 65 with the 65 trial and sepsis, they said, you know, there's not a really big difference between 60 and 65. But I think for trauma, 65 is kind of that good number for us. Um, and it leaves a little bit more of a buffer for those changes that you're going to anticipate with the trauma patients who are hemorrhaging. And I've also been taught 90 systolic is usually a good number to kind of shoot for when we're talking about systolic blood pressure. Have you been taught kind of anything different around those numbers? I've, uh, I've practiced in my practice of trying to titrate to that, uh, 65, um, or greater for your yeah. mean arterial pressure. You're going to, if you have that 65 or up, you're going to get, um, your end organ perfusion. So your kidneys, your bowel, your liver, that kind of stuff, along with your heart and your brain. Um, in titrating, uh, pressors, fluid resuscitation, both isotope with, with fluids and with blood, um, and, uh, trying to keep in mind that. Yes, we're going to get to that point of greater than 65 for our MAP. You also see your, your systolic blood pressure rise. 90 and above, you know, between 90 and 100, 110, you may see people classify that as hypotension. Um, greater than 90 is great because then you can see that you have your heart pumping enough blood to the extremities and back. Um, but I, I, in my practice, I've seen targeted of a map greater than 65 for your endpoint of resuscitation. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I had a really good discussion with a lot of providers recently about this idea of when would we be using MAP and when would we be using systolic blood pressure and what are the advantages and disadvantages of both of those. And I think what we kind of settled on, you and I talked a little bit in the pre-show, but um, what I settled on with my wife, who's a nurse, and the ED docs that I've talked to about this and the other trauma, you know, flight people, is that systolic blood pressure tends to capture a little bit of a better picture of the actual volume of blood loss in the acute setting in that moment. Kind of those drops in systolic blood pressure are kind of identifying that you're getting fluid loss. You're having a reduction in stroke volume because you have a reduction in fluid and therefore you have an increase in heart rate. And you can kind of track that as it's happening. Whereas mean arterial pressure is more of a standard over time to identify whether those organs are actually perfusing with the amount of blood flow that they need um, in kind of a more reliable, consistent way. And I thought it was really interesting that I went through a lot of trauma programs. I'm an instructor in a few programs, and I never really had that discussion. And I thought it was uh, very eye-opening that a lot of our programs we teach are centered towards MAP. I was talking to my wife about a trauma case she had, and the head trauma doctor with a lot of military training who's up there is using systolic blood pressure. And it's one of those things where I think us as EMS providers, and I'm sure yourself going through your career, I think we owe it to medicine and our our uh, careers when we notice someone above us is doing something different. You have to stop and at least try to understand why they might be choosing to do something different because there's no doubt in my mind that that person is very comfortable with mean arterial pressure and systolic blood pressure. And I think a healthy lesson you know, in, in life in EMS is when someone who's very experienced chooses to do something different than what you would do, take a step back and ask yourself, why would they choose that and kind of pursue that information and learn a little bit more? And I know this particular experience in my case, um, I never would have thought of that. I never would have thought of tracking the loss of blood versus tracking the perfusion of the organs and the fact that those are telling me two different things about what's happening inside my patient. Yeah, totally. Um, I think I totally agree with everything you just said. And one of the aspects of, uh, say, a metric to try to predict um, how poor off your patient may be. And you may hear it in some of the um, classes you take is something called the shock index. Um, the shock index is a predictor of um, uh, increased morbidity and mortality due to blood loss and hemorrhage um, and can be used as a early indicator for someone um, if needing information to prepare like mass, mass transfusion protocol or getting them blood earlier. Um, the equation for your... Um, your stro uh, shock index is heart rate divided by stroke, uh, your systolic blood pressure. Heart rate divided by your systolic blood pressure gives you your shock index. A normal uh, range for an adult is 0 0.5 to 0 0.7 as a value. Anything that is over 0 0.9 um, tells you that there is a predictable increase in morbidity mortality, and you may want to intervene earlier with that blood product That uh, and, and trying to figure out, okay, they're still bleeding if my shock index doesn't change. They get a systolic blood pressure greater than 90 and all of a sudden it drops again. What am I missing? Am I missing anything? And the, how fast this person needs to go to definitive care, whether that be embolization um, in the OR or damage control surgery again in the OR. And just helps you, you know, push that forward and give you that information to where they, this patient needs to go. Absolutely. And I've always found that if you can articulate where you're coming from in a uh, elegant way to the medical team, it tends to speed up the process that the patient gets uh, to where they need to be. 
Um, I use an app called MD Calc. I don't know if you use that at all, but I really love MD Calc and it does have shock index predictors on there. And so I could take a trauma patient I have and if I got 10 seconds while the patient's getting out, you know, unloaded from the ambulance by my crew, I can step out the side door and pull out my phone and do a quick shock index because I just looked at the monitor and I know all the information. Um, I think if I can walk into that OR and be like, hey, we have a 1.2 shock index. I just did it. Then the docs can be like, oh, man, this dude's like, he knows. Like, and that's going to cue them in with quantitative data that shows what I'm telling them and what I feel about my patients, um, you know, the the uh, you know, acuity of my patient, I can demonstrate that with numbers with a time tested peer reviewed index that shows the likelihood is high. And I think that's much different than me, you know, showing up and, and doing the weatherman from family guy and just saying real bad, you know, and everyone's like, all right, let's figure this out. And now you can, you can actually say, you know, that 1.2 and they're like, okay, he's done his math where, you know, he knows his numbers. Like this is, we need this guy, you know, in the OR, you know, and we always say trauma is a surgical disease. And sometimes those big areas, the torso, the pelvis, you know, the head, that's not, you know, there's not much I can do in the ambulance. Sometimes it's, okay, this is, you need to get to the OR. That's what we're going to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you are taking trauma patient and they ask you for what your highest heart rate and lowest systolic blood pressure was, that's the reason why. Yep, absolutely. And, and I think our comm center does a pretty good job of getting that information. And I really appreciate the seasoned comm center folks. Dan, what's the what's the uh, wrap up for fluid resuscitation and trauma? What are some keys for your your AEMTs who are out there administering isotonic crystalloids? Anything for the paramedics? Any for our flight pro- providers that are out there um, potentially carrying colloids as well? Yeah, I, one of the biggest things with trauma is you know we don't want to give them too much fluid. We can start with fluid resuscitation, give them a liter to help with that expanding of the intracellular volume, um, but we don't want to give too much. We don't want to hemodilute them. Um, we don't want to, um, put them, give them too much fluid and then create worse things for them like pulmonary, um, edema. Um, you know, thinking about early blood, uh, transfusion if you have it and getting to a facility that can both provide blood and provide definitive care of being in the OR. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing with trauma too, is like we said, it's, it's surgical disease. And sometimes the best thing we can do in EMS is recognize that they're having a high mechanism and high potential morbidity and mortality, get them to appropriate care, make sure the resources are activated, and manage those manageable things that we can do. Stop the exsanguinating bleed. You know, administer fluid to titrate a MAP greater than 65 or a systolic blood pressure above 90, and turn on the heat in the ambulance. Those are the things, you know, we I can't tell you how many folks I've seen fail their national registry at all levels because they don't put a blanket on the patient. Those are simple, simple, basic things. And I know folks that get frustrated by that. You know, they're frustrated that they fail because they don't put the blanket on, even though they do everything else perfectly. However, we just talked about this. It's related to the ATP. It's a basic function. It's a it's a core fundamental of trauma, um, so much so that in our pre-hospital trauma life support, there's a whole slide just on hypothermia and the fact that it affects ATP and, and puts people in this anaerobic metabolism and creates acidosis. So... Do what you can to manage these patients in the ambulance. Be judicious with your fluid. I know people love to say that word in EMS and and medical care. Be judicious. Um, Think about what you're doing. Make sure that you are balancing the need for a MAP greater than 65 and a systolic blood pressure over 90, um, 110 and a head injury uh, with the potential triad or diamond of death um, of the hemodilution, anticoagulation problems, uh, the hypothermia, and the acidosis. 
and the hypocalcemia as well. So, yeah, you'll see that last part more if you're doing an intra facility or in the hospital, but. Yeah, yeah, just something to keep in mind. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. And I know we have a lot of folks that listen to us that do do some interfacility transfers. Um, and that's, that's a great point as well. So, well, Dan, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for hosting as well, too. And the coffee. It's delicious. Anytime, man. Anytime. Yeah. All right. Well, happy back soon. Thank you. Yeah, take care.